Welcome to you, Elaine Scarry. You are the Walter M. Kappa Professor of Aesthetics and the General Theory of Value at Harvard University. And you've, of course, written extensively on topics such as torture, democracy, consent, war. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to, to come here today and discuss your work. Um, I'm Jens Bjering, and I'm a postdoc at the University of Southern Denmark and a member of the research group, The Aesthetics of Late Modern War. And um, tomorrow we're having a one-day conference uh, under the topic of war and philosophy, where you and three other distinguished talkers, speakers, um, Christopher Coker, Vivian Japri, and Josef Vogel are going to give a presentation each. And, uh, and your presentation uh, is titled Philosophy and Nuclear War. Um, would you care to tell us a little bit about uh, what your presentation is going to be more specifically about? It's really about the way in which this new form of weaponry, I say new, but it's 70 years old, about the way this form of weapon has disabled critical thinking and disabled deliberation. In 1995, there was a case at the International Court of Justice in which 78 countries asked the court to make a ruling on whether nuclear weapons were illegal. And the litigants had cited many different international covenants and protocols, such as the Convention Prohibiting Genocide, or the Geneva Protocols, or various conventions on the environment. The litigants had cited these as grounds for showing that nuclear weapons are illegal. And my own country, in a joint statement by the Department of Defense and the Department of State, argued that none of these covenants um, showed that nuclear weapons were illegal. And they went through them one by one, providing uh, an explanation. For example, they said that regarding the covenant that prohibits genocide, yes, it's true that, that huge numbers of people will be slaughtered with nuclear weapons, but that won't count as genocide because the intention would not have been to eliminate in whole or in part a specific racial or ethnic group. So they went through each covenant one by one. But now Japan had actually argued that <clears throat> it wasn't just one covenant or one protocol that was being nullified by nuclear weapons. It was actually the whole philosophic foundation of, uh, of international law that was disabled by the existence of nuclear weapons. And so I asked myself the question in preparation for this conference we're having tomorrow, I asked myself the question, did the Department of State and the Department of Defense in the United States try to refute that claim? It, re it tried to refute all the others. And on the face of it, it can seem as though, of course not. They didn't stand there and say, here's why uh, philosophy has nothing to say about nuclear weapons. But on another level, they actually did address it. Here's how they did. No matter what argument they were making about Geneva Protocols or the Rio Declaration or the Convention on Genocide, they, in each case, talked about the fact that the arguments the court was making by using these protocols all um, were addressing a future event and therefore were speculative, 
hypothetical or abstract. And if you read the case, which went on for many months, you'll see that set of words coming up again and again and again, that, that, um, that it, it isn't legitimate to speculate, to hypothesize, um, to talk in abstractions. Now, this is clearly an untrue statement that this is future, uh, because the architecture for bringing about nuclear devastation is completely in place. All that's waiting is the launch, and that only takes five minutes. So it's not true to say that this is just a future question. And of course, the United States has also actually used nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But even if we allow them, uh, allow the idea that these, this is a topic that is future directed, um, you can see that what it's what it is claiming to be illegitimate illegitimate is speculation and deliberation and hypothesizing if you actually look at the last 70 years you realize that it didn't take until 1995 that is the date of this court case for philosophy to have been called into question in fact at a very early point in the nuclear age philosophy came to be seen as irrelevant to the um, international sphere, to international relations. Many people have observed the way in which political philosophy, as it's carried out in universities or in conversations of philosophers, continued to address topics such as what is just, what is fair, what is equality. But those questions were seen to be irrelevant to the neorealism of the um, international relations. So I look at it in three different areas, and that's the area of social contract theory, the area of um, democratic peace theory, and less less uh, thoroughly in the area of aesthetics. And I'll just I'll just I can sketch each of those. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So in social contract theory, I mean, first of all, if you start with concrete constitutions and contracts, you can see that with the invention of nuclear weapons, we just put aside the constitutional laws. In the United States, the cornerstone of the Constitution, the most important provision of the Constitution, according to earlier jurists, is what's called Article One, Clause 8, uh, 11. And that is the requirement for a congressional declaration of war. That means that before you ever begin to injure a foreign population, you have to get people to argue whether it really is in fact the case that these people are deserving of your attack on them. Once nuclear weapons were invented, that was the end of the constitutional requirement for a declaration of war. Yes, we continue to have wars. We went into Korea, we went into Vietnam, we've invaded many other countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, former Yugoslavia, so on and so forth. Zero cases where we've had a congressional declaration of war. We've had authorizations of force. We've even in one case had what's called a conditional declaration of war that was in the first Iraq war with the um, elder Bush president. But we have not had a congressional declaration of war. And you can see that presidents feel, wait, if I have this incredible power at my fingertips, President Nixon, for example, said, 
I can go into the next room, pick up a phone, and in 25 minutes, 70 million people will be dead. If a president has that kind of power, then he feels, why, if I'm merely going to invade Panama, do I actually have to go to Congress and get permission? And we've had presidents who've uh, said that pretty explicitly. For example, uh, the elder George Bush uh, said about his going into Iraq, I didn't have to go into Congress and ask some old goat's permission uh, to, to go into, uh, to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And, uh, you know, in the younger Bush administration, there was a moment when um, President Cheney was being interviewed on a TV news station. The interviewer wanted to know about all the egregious acts of torture that had been carried out during that um, presidency. And Cheney was dumbfounded. Rather than saying, yes, maybe we overstepped our bounds and our, our powers, he said the opposite. He said, he said, do you understand that 24 hours a day, the nuclear football is following the president of the United States? You have no idea what the, um, what the, the executive power is. So this is just a concrete state that this has been put aside. And something like that is true in at least some of the other nuclear states. For example, um, Russia has two constitutional provisions, one oh, I think it's 102 and 106, that specify that if the uh, an act of war is going to be carried out outside the borders of the country, mm. uh, the, the federal council, which is the equivalent of the American Senate, has to authorize it. Um, and India has in its constitution uh, 246, I believe it is, which specifies that the parliament is responsible for all matters of defense and war and peace. Um, again, in France, uh, there's a specific article, I believe the number is 35, that, uh, that, that says that it is the parliament that will decide um, whether to go to war, that you have to have a declaration of war. So. In the United States, um, in, in all these other countries, the, the kind of procedures for governance have just been evaporated mm. by the presence of nuclear weapons. So that's, that's a concrete case of the social contract having been ripped up. And what I look at for, for this lecture is also the way the theoretical part of it has been set aside. When I used to during the 90s and early parts of the 21st century, when I would be lecturing at law schools or at faculties of arts and science about the um, ripping up of the social contract of our constitution that uh, is the outcome of nuclear weapons, very often somebody in the audience would raise their hand and say, well, that's all very good for John Locke, um, what you you know, John Locke said, mm. the legislature is the soul of a democracy. Um, but what about Thomas Hobbes? Wouldn't he say that's fine, that uh, you can have the monarch with this absolute uh, ability to annihilate people? Well, nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, in international relations, one of in back in the fifties the state of anarchy was taken as the kind of um, residing state of things. 
But anarchy was, from Hobbes' point of view, the worst possible outcome. Mm -hmm. Hobbes says at one point that the very worst thing that you can happen, imagine happening to a population is the slaughter of the citizenry. And then he goes on to say, this can't happen in a democracy. It can't happen in an oligarchy. It can't happen in an aristocracy. It can't happen in a monarchy. It can happen only if there's non-governance, that is to say, anarchy. Mm -hmm. And yet that's exactly what was accepted as a norm in international relations. In almost every page of Hobbes' Leviathan, he makes it clear that the, what the social contract, the social contract has one purpose, which is getting us out of the miserable condition of war. That's a quotation, and he says it over and over again. In fact, he often refers to the social contract as the laws of peace or articles of peace. And he at one point says that injury is to the social contract what absurdity is to logical discourse. Um, that just as in discourse, if you have absurdity, it disables the whole conversation, the whole deliberation. Mm -hmm. So too, he says that injury is the undoing of the social contract. The number of times that he makes it clear that the motive for his writing is to produce a covenant that will bring about peace, that happens so many times that it is extraordinary that conversations about Hobbes in the late 20th century and 21st century simply leave out the word peace or the fact that that is his central goal. In fact, one scholar uh, points out that he is the single philosopher because he's so much about the nature of war and peace mm -hmm. that he's the one philosopher who might have helped us when we entered this new stage. And yet, rather than recognizing he helped us, we just obliterated the whole, the point mm -hmm. of what he was um, actually talking about. Yeah, and I guess you could say that, that even a thinker as hawkish as Carl Schmitt, he actually also emphasizes that aspect of Thomas Hobbes. I think he, he, he repeats over and over again the, the protego ergo obligo, I protect the population, and that's the only, that's the basis of the contract, right? And that whole protection system is undermined by nuclear weapons, I guess. Yeah, and that's that's a very important point. And one of the odd things is that in the nuclear age, Hobbes's uh, views are often coupled with Carl Schmitt's views, uh, even though Carl Schmitt's views were, were, of course, not were written during the Third Reich and not during the birth of the nuclear age. But Hobbes' voice would be coupled with Schmitt's and particularly Schmidt's idea that in an emergency, the Constitution could be set aside. Um, and the, you know, some of the people arguing that would, would say that, uh, that the, the personal features of the monarch were allowed to preempt the Constitution. And just as you say, what makes this especially bizarre is that Schmidt, of all people, does emphasize uh, Hobbes's own focus on peace mm -hmm. and is and, do, and does so to a much greater extent than uh, than most other uh, late twentieth century accounts of Hobbes. Yeah. Um, now, in in the most recent period, 
there has been a kind of change in the view of, of Hobbes with people like Richard Tuck, um, who see that on some level he's a radical Democrat in Tuck's view, and that this, this, this idea that uh, he would not tolerate uh, popular dissent is a kind of crazy idea. Mm-hmm. One thing that I spent a lot of time looking at is the way in which Hobbes throughout his writing absolutely credits the idea of individual people's dissent. And that starts with, um, you know, writings like Leviathan and De Kiwe and De Kapore, but it continues all the way up into the very end when he translates Homer's Iliad, um, because Homer's Iliad is a story about the descent of one soldier, Achilles, mm. and about the fact that that um, if you have one soldier dissenting, it can threaten to have the whole war be lost, um, as happens until Achilles comes into the war on behalf of Patroclus. But I look very closely at Hobbes's translation of the Iliad, and far from trying to obscure uh, Achilles' descent, Hobbes does everything to foreground it, in fact, the marginal gloss at the top of the translation say uh, the descent and secession of Achilles, and then you turn the page, the descent and secession of Achilles, and then you turn the page, the descent and secession of Achilles. Another work in which you can really see Hobbes uh, crediting the idea that soldiers ha- have to be able to exercise um, consent or dissent over what their countries do is in Behemoth, which is the story of the the um, civil war in um, in England, and he says there, if soldiers will not, no, I'm sorry, um, if people will not obey the law, what is it that can make them an army? You will say, but what will make the army? So, right. in other words. The, the army is is going to decide mm. whether it's going to obey or not. And amazingly, throughout Behemoth, he, cre- he, he despises the war that's going on, the civil war that's going on, but he greatly um, admires the work of individual soldiers. He shows that, he argues that um, the soldiers uh, vote on whether or not they're going to carry out a, a massacre that they've been ordered to carry out. He shows that they choose their own representatives. He shows that they raise taxes uh, on themselves to to try and uh, cover expenses. Um, at, at one point, um, he says, why, why is it that uh, so-and-so didn't make himself the leader? And he says he didn't because he knew the soldiers wouldn't stand for it. And, you know, in some ways, this may not sound surprising to us because we live in an era where we know that soldiers are often uh, heroic and large statured and so forth. But at the times that Hobbes was living, soldiers were dragooned. They they were um, gathered often from people who didn't have a lot of property. Now, just to be clear, um, people who were from wealthy families might be trained in the case of invasion, but the regular um, the regular forces for carrying out 
the the monarchs wars were kind of dragooned into it and were usually people who were um, somewhat poor and the records for the time show the kind of contempt in which they're held by their own generals who have lists of things saying well I was sent uh, you know 15 I was sent you know a hundred people well 50 of them could could barely walk another 10 of them were drunkards another 10 of them were I rejected because of that reason so the portrait we get in in Shakespeare you know sometimes of kind of comic soldiers that's a pretty accurate depiction of the way in which they were treated mm. now along comes Thomas Thomas Hobbes and he says if men will not obey the law what is it that can make them an army you will say but what will make the army um, the the army of of ordinary people um, can can exercise tremendous power um, over whether an executive that wants to invade a country or carry out a slaughter really can can do so. I think that's very, very interesting. I think it also sort of like speaks into our situation today. And I guess a question would be, do you think it's a sign of a political crisis or at least a that we're in a difficult political place right now, both in, in the US, I guess, but also in other parts of the world, that to a certain extent, we need to rely on the uh, on the dissent and bravery of the military itself in order to rein in some of the, I guess, civilian desires for uh, for war or civilian uh, desires for, for pushing more aggressive agendas. It always occurred to me that when the army or the, the military is, is the last resort, you're in, you're in a tough spot. Uh, do, you, do you think we see signs of that right now, that, that the military is actually being sort of a, a moderating force uh, on, on civilian politician executive branches' uh, desire to, uh, for belligerence? I think that that's absolutely right. And you hear people asking the question all the time, um, you know, in this recent period with, with President Trump, um, people in the United States have become a little more aware of this really obscene practice we have, this obscene arrangement we have that allows one person, the president, to launch a nuclear weapon. And that has been true during the whole nuclear age and true of every president and presidents like Eisenhower did consider using it. We know that in both the Taiwan Straits in 54 and again in Berlin in 59. We know that JFK, according to Robert McNamara, three times came within a hair's breadth of all-out nuclear war. We know that Nixon has said that he considered doing uh, using nuclear weapons four times. We know that Lyndon Johnson considered using nuclear weapons against China to prevent them from getting it. So what I'm saying is not just against Trump, because this is a, an arrangement we've had all along. Mm. But because Trump um, is erratic and unpredictable, people in the United States are waking up to the fact that, that, that we have this truly obscene arrangement that's going to let one person do it, uh, launch a weapon, and people will say, well, we have to hope that the military will refuse to carry it out. Um, and when you actually ask the military what their uh, response is, they will usually tell you that they train day in and day out for carrying out 
the launch. The, the nuclear launch is meant to be streamlined. It's meant to be efficient. Um, it's meant to, to get out of the way any obstacles. So for example, if you read accounts that are given by um, people who are on the Ohio-class nuclear submarines. So and let me just fill in here and say that an Ohio-class submarine, we have, we have um, 14 of them. Each of them carries the equivalent of 4,000 Hiroshima blasts. Um, each of them, therefore, is empowered to uh, destroy a whole continent uh, single-handedly. Um, the Earth only has seven continents. The United States has 14 Ohio-class submarines, okay? When you read the accounts of people who have trained on them, you learn that day in and day out, they are practicing for um, the, the launch of, of the, the nuclear weapon. And they have, they have to practice what to do if one of them uh, begins to descent or acts up. So that's part of the, the training, actually. Yeah. That's part of the training. And they are not trained to sit there and say, okay, now imagine that we've just gotten the launch order. How should we deliberate whether to do this? Oh, no, no, no. That would be a sign that you have got to get off the submarine as quickly as possible. In fact, there's one person um, who is a, um, who was a, 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 a launch officer for not on a submarine, but an ICBM, the land-based missiles, in the United States, he during his time there uh, began to ask the question: How how do I know that this order that might come in from the president is a legitimate order? Uh, well, you know now there are authentication codes, so we know it's the president. No, but how do we know that the president is doing something uh, legitimate? And this former officer has been on radio programs and so forth, explaining what happened to him when he raised that kind of questions. That kind of question was considered a completely wrong question, and he was essentially um, punished. I don't mean he was sent to jail, mm. but he was, I, I believe, deprived of his pension, things like that, uh, and for, for raising that kind of question. So this is a well-oiled machine. Um, and anything that is obstructive or dissenting uh, has been gotten out of the way in advance. Nonetheless, I think you're right that that the way the arrangement currently exists, the only hope is that if a president launched it, the, the people who were being ordered to carry out the launch would um, refuse to do so. And there are, there are examples um, of cases where uh, there was one case in, in Russia, there's a film called The Man Who Saved the World, who's about an officer uh, on a submarine who refused to forward the information that came in saying that uh, the United States had... had. Yeah, was that early 80s, I think? I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's correct. So what, what you're telling us is basically that, that nuclear weapons don't only change the the game of strategic warfare. It changes the entire game, also the civil game of society, if you will, um, by, by relegating conventional war to, to I guess, uh, to something not important enough to ask the population or the Congress about, because when we have these huge weapons, who cares if we invade Panama or whatever. Right. Um, is, this, is this a structural aspect of nuclear weapons or is it also a matter of, uh, of uh, for instance, the, U the US Constitution uh, 
not being, I guess, its architecture not being very good at uh, providing a framework for, 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 for this sort of weaponry. I, I recall a, a professor or, a, or a, an expert on American constitutional law saying that the executive's war powers are notoriously ill-defined. Uh, is, is this whole, uh, is, this a, is this dynamic you're describing, is that something that will always come with nuclear weapons or is it, is it something that also comes, uh, uh, hits the U.S. especially hard because of its, the way its constitution is put together or does it exacerbate it or is it, do you think it just, it's a structural feature of nuclear weapons? No, I think it's it, that the constitution is a brilliant, brilliant uh, document you know, Thomas Paine said that uh, nuclear that that the United States Constitution um, is to governance what an alphabet is to language. Um, you know, and it's it's. I think that that's absolutely right. And to me, nothing is more brilliant than the um, provisions it has for overseeing our entry into war. Now, I suppose you could say that there would be a way of making uh, the executive powers more clearly stated. For example, Norway's constitution very directly says that if Norway is attacked, the king can act up to the border, but not one step beyond. Um, and the if he's going to go one step beyond, uh, he has to get the authorization of the sorting, I think it's pronounced. Mm -hmm. um, is that correct pronunciation? Uh, well, I don't speak Norwegian either, yeah. so uh, okay. it, it, sounds, it sounds about right. Okay, good. <laughs> well, it, but it's the equivalent of the parliament or the Congress. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it then goes on to say that, um, that if anybody in that assembly sees that the, that the executive is going beyond the border without their authorization, they will be held accountable. If they haven't spoken out about it, they are obligated to speak out about it if they see that that is happening. So that's a clear division between mm -hmm. defense and offense. Um, and the, the, the executive can act single-handedly to defend the country. So presumably when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt could start to take preparations to defend the interior of the country, including um, Hawaii, without consulting Congress. But he immediately, by the way, did Congress call Congress into session and ask them for a declaration of war uh, that then let him go on and make offensive uh, actions. That is the idea of the American Constitution as well. He is the commander in chief in one of two conditions. A, the country is attacked or that is the, our borders are crossed and he can begin to defend the, the population, or B, the Congress issues a declaration of war. Mm. The same is true in the Russian constitution. It actually makes that distinction between what the executive can do for defense and what they can do for offense. Now, the problem is that in the United States, it keeps using the language of defense that have nothing to do with defense. It's carrying out one act of imperial aggressive war after another, none of which have to do with the defense of the country. On 9-11, the Pentagon could not defend the Pentagon. On 9-11, an airplane hit the Pentagon of the United States. Supposedly one of the most closely guarded buildings in the world. One and of the most, and the, and the seat of our, of our so-called Department of Defense. Mm. 
it could not defend itself. And in contrast to the citizens on Flight 93 that brought down the um, airplane in Pennsylvania and uh, did that by getting information from their cell phones about people on the ground, deliberating. They voted. They actually voted. Um, one of them had the Constitution in her pocket um, just by coincidence. And then they stormed the plane and brought it down, mm. preventing it from hitting you know, a, a building in Washington or a lot of other people. But the United States Pentagon couldn't, could not defend the Pentagon because it has not been practicing defense. Mm. It, it doesn't even have the concept of protecting the United States population. So I don't think that the kind of disarray that we're in constitutionally right now has anything to do with the weakness of the U.S. Constitution. However, there's a reason why that question would come up in your mind or that description would come up that you cited. And that is that once you cast off, like, let me back up. Nuclear weapons and constitutions are mutually exclusive. So when we got nuclear weapons, we jettisoned the Constitution. Once you jettison a Constitution, once you trash something, once you denigrate it, now it looks like a paltry thing. Mm -hmm. So when you say to people, well, we can solve this by bringing back the Constitution, they say, you mean, that's, that's such a lame solution. Uh, the Constitution, that's just a piece of paper. Well, it is just a piece of paper unless you're acting on it. And then if you're acting on it, you'd see that it's like David's slingshot in David and Goliath. It has the power to actually dismantle mm -hmm. the whole nuclear array. That's, I think that's a brilliant uh, closing line for this interview. Thanks so much, Elaine. And I'm looking a lot forward tomorrow to, to hearing your, your expanded talk on this. So thanks a lot again.